Kia Wellington. You're listening to B-Side Stories on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM. This is Perrine and we are on the road today to hear a bit about the labour history of Pōneke. So I am currently in the Wellington Museum and I'm here with Peter Clayworth. Kia ora, Pete. Kia ora. Peter's going to tell us a bit about um, labour history in Wellington. He's been a local historian for a while now (laughs) and um, has been involved with labour history project among other things. Um, Peter, do you want to just quickly introduce yourself? Ah, kia ora. Um, Yes, I'm Peter Clayworth. I work as a historian um, mostly on sort of treaty negotiation type issues but in my spare time I've done a bit of labour history and what I'll be talking about today are um, a number of sites that uh, connect with big events that happened in Wellington over a hundred years ago in the 1913 Great Strike in the eight months or so before the First World War broke out but uh, there was this period of great industrial struggle in throughout the country and the storm centre so to speak was here in Wellington mm. and in 2013 the centenary of these events a uh, group uh, various organisations came together to organise some commemorative events. One of the uh, events we held was a 1913 strike walking tour. We took people through various sites uh, around the harbour, around the port, and also up Buckle Street. Um, and I will just talk about a few of those those sites and the events connected with them today. Yeah. Great. So we're having a mini walking tour and as it is a really um, classic Wellington spring day with lots of rain, grey skies and wind, we'll do it mostly indoors but we might brave the outdoors Mm. in a bit. (laughs) Um, First, could you just, we'd be keen to hear a bit about the background of what actually happened in the strike and why it's important to remember it now. So could you just talk us through the kind of basics of the event. Okay, um, the period in from the 1900s into the 1920s around the Western world was one of great industrial struggles. There were a lot of strikes all around the place, uh, all kinds of revolutionary activities, um, including of course in 1917 the Russian Revolution and so on. Uh, New Zealand was not immune to the events of class struggle. Uh, uh, after a long period of industrial peace under an arbitration system, uh, the more militant unions, the miners, watersiders, various strong unions decided they weren't getting work anywhere under that system and pushed to work by direct action, um, direct negotiation, strikes, etc. New Zealand went from being known as a country without strikes to a place of a lot of conflict and a big organised militant union movement got together mm. based around initially around the miners but then spread to the watersiders and so on. And that was, became what was called the New Zealand Federation of Labour, and they were known as the Red Feds. Right. And in opposition to them was, on the one hand, the government, uh, which by the time of the strike was a reform government, a, a quite conservative business and farming-oriented government, uh, and the organised employers, the Employers Federation, and the farmers. Uh, so the farmers especially saw any strikes by watersiders as a great danger because it affected their exports, uh, which of course the economy was dependent on. The actual strike itself 
grew out of earlier events that there had been a big strike at Waihi in 1912 where the very militant gold miners union up there had been smashed and one of their members had been killed. Um, they had been an uh, important union in the Red Feds and that struggle resurfaced in late 1913, broke out initially over, uh, on the one hand, up in Huntley, a strike broke out there because of uh, members of the union being sacked, uh, including activists, and in Wellington it broke out over relatively minor issues of um, regard to ship rights, uh, over um, travel pay, but then the watersiders were drawn in because they were, um, a bunch of them lost their jobs through going to a strike me a meeting about whether to support the ship rights. Right. Um, this was a big thing for watersiders because they were casual workers. So they were, but really the struggle wasn't about these individual issues. It was really about um, control of the workplace between the militant unions on the one hand and organised employers who wanted to smash those militant unions on the other. And the strike spread from the sites of Huntley and Wellington through uh, miners and watersiders throughout the country. Some other unions joined in, such as the drivers in Wellington. And in Auckland, for several weeks, there was a general strike. But in Wellington, it was particularly significant because there were, um, you will have seen, uh, just as an aside, a lot of things lately about all the events of 1981. Um, from The Springbok Tour. The Springbok Tour, and people have said this was um, the nearest thing to a civil war since the 1860s. Well, it could be argued that, in fact, 1913 was even more so because we had actual shooting in the streets of Wellington. You had armed special constables um, on horseback uh, charging people with batons um, and major street conflicts. We had machine guns actually set up in Buckwood Street and on the waterfront, although they were not actually used. Whoa. So you had a period of major civil unrest in Wellington. And uh, that is one of the reasons why this is a thing that's well worth remembering, that we do have a history of ex quite um, extreme class struggle at times in this country. Uh, it has not always been such a quiet and laid-back place as people seem to think. <laughs> Um, and so why did you suggest we come to the Museum of Wellington, or formerly the Museum of City and Sea, and before that, the Harbour Board? Well, in 1913, this was the Bond store, but it was also the place where the um, Harbour Board itself met, and the Harbour Board, of course, was one of the groups involved in uh, on the employer's side in the strike. Um, of course, the, the building opposite, um, which has all the uh, art uh, exhibitions and yeah, so on. That portrait was gallery. the portrait gallery. That was the administrative um, centre of for the Harbour Board, and in front was the uh, over the other side of the square. Post it was Post Office Square. Opposite was what is now the Huddock Parker Building. Was I think at that time the Queen's Chambers, which was the headquarters for the Watersiders Union and the Seamen's Union. The Seamen later joined the strike as it after it gone on for several weeks. Um, so you had the key players in these buildings here, but you also had the square itself, which was where thousands of watersiders and their supporters gathered amongst the strike had been declared, and there was literally barricades along the um, to keep them out of getting onto the waterfront. And in those early days of gathering, they several times tore down the barricades and stormed the wharves and persuaded, often quite uh, physically, those who had kept on working to um, 
to stop work, so the in the early weeks or so of the strike, the strikers literally got control of the waterfront because there were a very small number of police in Wellington at the time, by those terms, and it became clear that the police could not control the strike. Mm. And that was where it started to get very interesting because um, the uh, Inspector Cullen, who was the head of the police, suggested they bring the army in, a chap called Colonel Hurd, who was the, um, the only army they had in those days. They had a whole lot of territorials, but they were not called up, of course. The territorials in the cities actually had their weapon, had to hand their weapons in for fear that they might actually use them against the <laughs> government, seeing they were, huh. many of them, working-class people who supported the strike or people like watersiders. So, um, but effectively the territorials would not be called up, but there was a permanent artillery unit at based at Buckle Street up where the old museum building is. So where that site is, in those days there was, there'd been a prison built there, which was actually not being used as a prison at this time, but was being used as a barracks for the permanent artillery. So they suggested they use the army, the small army there was, Colonel Hurd said, no, if you're going to use the army, you have to, they have to be prepared to shoot people. He didn't want them to be connected with this officially. He suggested instead, and this was followed up, that they recruit special constables from the countryside and also from um, acceptable groups in the town. So they used the territorial structure in the uh, offices in the countryside to recruit um, all these farmers and farm workers, bring their horses, um, they armed them up with batons and with revolvers and brought them into the towns. With the idea that those people had a bit of skin in the game? Absolutely, or? yes, yes, they definitely mm. had skin in the game. You might, you might, again, using the Springbok tour analogy, it's as though the rugby supporters were armed up as special constables <laughs> and let loose, and that is the situation you had, which led to, in Wellington, to extreme conflict between the strikers and the special constables. So when the constables first arrived in Wellington, they camped at a site right near what's now the railway station. And that had a, this camp that they were in had barricades around it. The strikers became aware that they were there, charged the barricades, stormed over, and literally chased out the special constables, driving them off the waterfront. Um, and on that same um, period, there were a number of other um, conflicts, which I'll describe when we get to um, Post Office Square and uh, up around the Gilson Street and Lambton Key areas. But um, effectively, Colonel Heard of the um, Army had not wanted to have the Special Constables barracked at Buckle Street where the Army unit was because he wanted a, an official separation between them, even though the the army was actually supplying them and so on. But he wanted it to officially be no connection. But after they were chased off the waterfront, it became clear they would have to put the um, special constables, they would have to barrack them up at Buckle Street. So they put them into the army barracks there and into various other buildings that were in the site, including the school. They also had tents all around. Horses were all um, were picketed up there all this sort of thing, which led to uh, some major issues because the sanitation workers refused, while they went on strike, they refused to have anything to do with the specials. So there were major problems with um, 
horse manure right. out there. <laughs> and when one of the horses died, um, uh, they wanted to donate it to the zoo for the lions to eat, but the uh, both the council workers and anyone connected with the zoo refused to move it. I don't know. I think they had to bury it in the end. But the while it was only initially the water siders and later the drivers and the seamen who went on strike, lots of other workers would not. Um, they wouldn't have anything to do with the specials, and the cases of tramway men throwing conductors and drivers throwing specials off trams, all these kinds of things went on. But in that early, to return briefly to that earlier uh, incident where they drove the specials off the waterfront, that day there was a small warship in port, and when the um, officials became feared that the whole situation was going to get totally out of control, they went to the Navy commander and they got the sailors on the ship to arm up with rifles and bayonets and drill in front of the ship. And they also brought out the ship's machine guns and cleaned them very Aww. conspicuously <laughs> in front of the strikers, thus making it clear that if, thing, that if things were not brought under control, they would actually be fired upon. They, they were not fired upon, which is very fortunate, but it was the thing where that was the level of, of um, fear and conflict that was coming into play at that time. Before we move on from this site, any thoughts about the kinds of things that would have been happening in this boardroom or, as it were, this boardroom over the way? Um, <laughs> well, this was where they initially um, the discussions were taking place here, but they soon actually uh, migrated up to um, the offices of the Union Steamship Company, which were just up the road a wee way from here. Um, and that was where what was first uh, the Ship Owners Committee, but it became the the Business Farmers and um, Citizens Defence Committee. They had their meetings there, and that was basically the employers, the mayor, um, the chairman of the Harbour Board, the various um, authority figures there. They met, and their entire... They were essentially the planners for the employers' side of the strike. They organised employers to um, get to raise money. They um, helped recruit the specials. They supplied them. They set up things like in the rowing club building, which was actually a different site from where those club buildings are now. They had the tea rooms there where um, young uh, women from the middle class, etc., um, served tea to these nice young specials who'd come in from the <laughs> countryside. Uh, um, and they essentially set up things to uh, to win their side of the strike, but they also negotiated to bring the government onto their side, which it very much was, right. and they carried out negotiations with the union leaders to try and um, to bring the strike to an end, but it was very much they insisted on it being ended on their terms, which um, meant that um, they were essentially asking that the strikers basically give in and go under the arbitration system, which they were strongly opposed to at that time. I mean, in the end, that was what did happen because the um, the strike was essentially lost in the long run. But um, it was a long struggle before that happened. It took went over October, from October 1913, from um, mid-October through uh, the watersiders. And first the seamen went back in late December and then the watersiders followed them. The miners remained out on strike until right through January. Wow. So it was not, by some terms, not a long strike, but it was a very 
major one, both because of the widespread strike around the country, but also because of that general strike in Auckland and because of the level of violence that happened in Wellington. There were some other incidents in other part of parts of the country, but nothing on the scale of what happened here. And it was notable that by the second or third day of the strike, the gunsmiths of Wellington had sold all their weapons. And this was a time before the First World War, there were no gun licensing laws, so things like revolvers were perfectly legal. Wild uh, West. It was, and there were a number of incidents in Post Office Square and up at Buckle Street where both sides were firing revolvers at each other. A number of people were wounded, but no one was killed, which was probably good luck rather than good management. Mm. Unlike the Westerns, in actual fact, the revolvers of the time were uh, very hard to aim accurately, which was probably very lucky. But, um, yeah, there were a number of people who were hospitalised for um, gunshot wounds or other injuries from from the strike. From Because we also had horses, had mounted specials on horseback charging people and battening them. You had also, on the other hand, strikers using uh, all kinds of missiles to throw at these people and um, bent nails and all things to, to injure the horses. And it was a fairly brutal struggle at times, um, both at, in the areas around Waterfront and also up at Buckle Street. Mm. All right, on that note, shall we hit the road? Indeed, let's do it. Okay, so we are overlooking Featherston Street at the moment. We're trying to hide out from the wind corridor that is Featherston Street right now. Um, Peter, what can you tell us about what happened on Featherston Street in 1913? Okay, and the so-called Battle of Featherston Street was one of the key events of the Wellington strike. Um, what happened that day was that um, it all had to do originally with some racehorses. So uh, the New Zealand Cup was happening down in Christchurch. The uh, strike leaders had agreed to allow the horses to be loaded and sent down there but the, the main body of strikers decided this was not going to happen and they were not going to allow it. The um, specials and their leaders, um, the police and um, other authority figures, they were seeing this as actually a way to open up the waterfront. What they did was they got the specials in a large body to march down on their horses from uh, Mount Cook and go to march down to the railway station get these horses and then take them on to the wharves which in effect uh, was actually a move to break through the strikers cordon and retake the waterfront um, for the authorities um, and as the big column of specials on horseback made their way through the streets of Wellington from Buckle Street a huge crowd filled up around them this was in those. It was on the fifth of November, which in those days was a win. It was uh, <laughs> that year fell on a Wednesday, which at that time was the half holiday. Um, they didn't have weekend as such as we have it, but you'd have each town had its own half holiday um, during the week or on a Saturday. But in Wellington, it was Wednesday, and that happened to be to coincide with when this big movement of um, specials was happening. So you had a huge crowd, and I think it was actually rather. A different day from today, rather a pleasant sunny day as well. <laughs> um, but what happened was essentially from um, 
back to, down Guzney Street area, it turned into a running street battle, which reached its crescendo when they got two Featherston Street specials were charging around, um, doing these cavalry charges at the crowds. People were hurling all sorts of missiles and objects at them. Um, there was one case of a tram driver who rammed one of the horses with his tram, Ooh. which would have been pretty gruesome because um, he was a, obviously a strike supporter. And essentially it was a massive street battle that took place all the way down Featherston Street, but also in other parts of town. Um, and because the foot specials um, had all been put into the parliament, into the um, government buildings down, um, the big wooden building down there, and not been on the street, the strikers actually had an advantage there because when the horses charged them, they could run off into the various back alleys and out of the way and jump over fences, etc. Um, but this running street battle in the end did end up being essentially a success for the um, specials. You can see, by the way, some very dramatic photos of this showing this often when they show photos of the strike, it's of the Battle of Featherston Street and the crowds running about. But um, essentially they got through, got these horses and um, opened up the waterfront and the tactic they used from there was that rather than because um, the strikers continued to picket the waterfront but rather than try and bring uh, scab workers through the uh, through the picket lines they set it up on the waterfront itself they took over one of the buildings there and uh, put bunks into it so they had workers sleeping uh, there and this is the um, harbour authorities and so on and also billeted them on some of the ships so they were able to get um, free labourers as they called them or scabs as the strikers <laughs> called them to start working the um, waterfront which was really what led to the um, collapse of the strike in the long run and that they were able to get these workers who were um, various local uh, various middle class folks and farmers and other folks to do the work that the watersiders would have been doing which um, meant that in the long run the, the strike was broken both through that and um, through essentially repression where a lot of the strike leaders were arrested um, and just attrition they couldn't um, they weren't able to they got some support from the unions in Australia but not enough to um, sort of slow the whole thing down um, and this taking over of the waterfronts happened all around the countryside usually not in as dramatic a fashion as in Wellington but uh, once that happened it was essentially the beginning of the end for the strike even though it went on for several months after that so yeah um, the Battle of Fitzson Street uh, very dramatic events and um, a yeah, turning point in in the strike itself What would you have seen on, so we're at Grey and Featherston Street, what would you have seen around this site, do you think, on the, on on the, the day? day? <laughs> on the day you had horses charging down Featherston Street, you had people running all, or left, right and centre all over the place. You had, because in those days there were a number of light industry sites, um, timber mills, things like that in town, you had all kinds of objects that were available for people to throw at <laughs> at these specials there so these little things were being hurled at them you had people climbing on roofs in order to be able to throw material at the um at the specials you just had general chaos um i don't know i don't think there are any actual shots fired during that particular incident but just about everything else was um people using slingshots firing 
of things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so general chaos, essentially. Quite a scene to imagine yeah. this time you're on yeah. Featherston Street. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, lines of men on horses yeah. charging down and charging along footpaths. There are a lot of complaints from the strikers of the fact that um, women and children were ridden down during these things. There were both women who were there as essentially spectators, they were there because they'd come into town because it was half holiday, but there were also women who were strongly supporting the strike and who were out there with the chaps and probably throwing material and doing all things <laughs> as well. So um, there was uh, definitely a combined effort there going on. The, um, there was also another role that women took during the strike, which was organising food supplies to the strikers. There was a committee of women got together and got, went to all sorts of different um, people like local fishermen, uh, some small number of sympathetic farmers, all sorts of people and organised the food supplies to found out who needed what and got it distributed to them. And there were also a number of women, um, uh, uh, activists who were involved in doing the speaking at the various strikers meetings as well. So it was mostly a bloke's affair but there were there were, was a definite woman's involvement in it. Sounds like a bad place to be a horse too. Oh yeah, no, not a good spot to be a horse. Um, you have to feel sorry for the, for, um, I mean obviously it's awful if you are a um, person being ridden down by a large horse but on the other hand they were getting all sorts of things thrown at them and some of them had to be, some of them were injured during some of these events and had to be put down mm. so on. Yeah, some other uh, reports of it are quite gruesome actually, yeah. yeah. Not a good time to be a horse. No. <laughs> All right. Okay, so we are not going to brave the weather out at Buckle Street, but can you tell us a little bit about what happened at Buckle Street? Okay, so Mount Cook at that time was a very working class suburb, but right in the middle of it was the Alexandra Barracks, which as I say, had been built as a prison, although up to that time, I don't think it had ever actually been used as a prison. That became the barracks for the permanent artillery. But during the 1913 strike, the specials were billeted there, and there were horses, and there was literally probably over a thousand people there, um, and very large numbers of people. And the local citizens were not happy about this at all. To them, it was a bunch of um, drunken farmers who'd come in to take over the area. So, um, and the locals literally besieged the Buckle Street Barracks. So you had um, lines of soldiers with rifles and bayonets across Buckle Street keeping people out, and they literally took out two machine guns and set them in place at each end of Buckle Street. These again were not used, but they were there just in case. Um, now, the locals do besieging the, the um, barracks, some of them would have probably been watersiders, but a large number of them were basically just local people who men and women and some kids as well mm. who while they supported the strike as much as anything were just really pissed off that here were these invaders from the countryside taking over their suburb and you would have also had that in those other incidents that I described while a lot of the people would have been either watersiders or other unionists supporting the strike there would have also been a certain element of the local yobos who were aware that this was the best fun in town who are getting involved in it. And by the same token, while the specials who came in, many of them were no doubt um, strongly believing their cause and that was saving the country from 
the red feds and saving their economy they're also thinking this is a lot of fun being able to run around on a horse bat battening people so especially the young ones so you had an element of yobbo behavior <laughs> on both sides so essentially for several nights in a row the barracks at um Pakwa street were besieged by the locals several days and nights and also any businesses such as some of the local one of the local bakeries that was seen to serve some specials so the local people went and smashed up all its windows um, some of the shopkeepers refused to serve specials um, probably um, partly because they did they believed this, uh, in sport and strikers but also obviously they didn't want to get their windows smashed there was also great incidents where women would be hurling the contents of chamber pots Aww. out the window over <laughs> specials as they went past and there was a particular pub at the Royal Tiger which um, yeah, where was that located? On the corner of Taranaki Street and Abel Smith Street. Oh and yeah. that pub became known as Specials Pub. So that was besieged by locals for two nights in a row who smashed all the windows of that pub because it had served special constables. So as this situation went on, it was also notable that the locals um, did tried not to actually, when they were hurling all their missiles, tried not to hit either the soldiers or the uniformed police because they were people they knew mm. but it was very much aimed at the specials and there was even a chant saying leave the leave the blue police alone go for the specials because these were the people they saw as their enemies and as a outside threat but um, on at least one occasion I think it may have happened a couple of occasions um, specials carried out cavalry charges in the Mount Cook area um, charging through the streets there shot they fired shots and shots were fired at them from the local houses and a number of people were wounded in those incidents so it was a serious street battle going on again um, it was more a miracle than anything else that no one got killed mm. do you think this would have been one of the kind of earlier <laughs> manifestations of like a rural urban divide oh very much so yeah yeah there was definitely a strong element of that and that was seen in the type of abuse the specials were referred to as cow spankers <laughs> and other, other such terms it was definitely that they were seen as the country bumpkins coming in the more um political um the more class theorist among the uh the red feds saw them as the uh, rural people as working against their own interests by um carrying out that by, by acting as specials but others just saw them as um rural um, rat bags who were coming in working for the employers and they were referred to as scab police as well because it was seen as as scab labor um the other thing that came through with this was that um the press apart from the uh the Maradan worker which was the um red feds paper and new zealand truth which in those days rather than being the right-wing scandal sheet that it became was a left-wing scandal sheet and <laughs> it was one of the few papers that actually Ooh. printed stuff uh, on against the specials and the government and on the side of the strikers uh, there's a case as an example of how it operated that a young reporter for the Dominion a young Pat Lawler who became very well known later as an author um, he's witnessed these incidents in Mount Cook with the uh, shootings on both sides came back and told his editor about this had a story written up the editor said no there was no firing from the special side it was all from the um 
from the red feds. And then um, Boyle was brought before Cullen, the police chief, who informed him that this was what had happened. The, the specials had not done any shooting. That was the article that came out in the paper. So it was very definitely, um, you know, the mainstream press, the capitalist press that was known was taking particular side on this. But um, despite that, there, uh, because of having um, his accounts from the other side, from Maradam Worker and so on, we get, uh, we can discern, you know, the t two sides of the story. Can I ask you just before we finish up, what your thoughts on? Um, well, I guess I want to know your thoughts on the kind of lasting impact of this conflict. I also want to know about what, when you walk around the city of Wellington and you see these sites that we've talked about, how that kind of makes you feel or whether you just kind of walk past it in a haze like the rest of us do. <laughs> you can answer either of them first. I'll, I'll <laughs> deal with the second question first. For me, it makes the city, I do think about these events and many other events that I know of. And I know there's vast number of events I don't know about, but I do think about these things as I walk around and it makes for me, to me, it makes it a much more interesting place. Um, the fact also that in the early 20th century, there was all this interesting stuff going on. I mean, these, for example, every time they had a strike, uh, they had a march, there was always the border side of the band marching with them. So you had a musical accompaniment to it all. You had these scandalous newspapers like Truth, you had apparently, um, at the pictures at the time, it was showing the silent version of Les Miserables with all the street battles and that, and it was literally being compared in the newspapers to this. Mm. Knowing that there's all this stuff going on, to me, on the one hand, I think it was a much more interesting time back then than people imagine, because yep. we're often presented as though New Zealand was a dull place in the early 1900s, whereas actually I think it was quite vibrant and there was a lot happening. But also, yeah, to me, it makes it a richer sort of city to know that had all these things going on just as you know we're well aware that overseas places have their events and so on but um yeah i for me it uh it keeps yeah it keeps gives me things to think about but it also gives the place more depth yeah yeah i can see that and any final thoughts on the kind of yeah where you know you said that the strikers didn't win out in the end. They they had to go back to work, but mm, mm. the lasting impact of well, the there's some interesting lasting impacts. I mean, one thing that happened, and one reason why the strike is probably less well known than it should be, was that the First World War broke out less than eight months after the strike had finished, and you uh, had this ironic situation where people who had fought each other on the streets were going and joining up, um, and going off to war together. That was mm. one thing that um had an impact on it but the strikes lasting impacts one thing of it is that the, despite the efforts the employers made to destroy the union movement it did retain while it was weakened for a period it retained a lot of power and um, that built up again during the first world war because they had to keep the workers on side but one thing that came from it also was that a lot of the strike leaders um, like um, Bob Semple and Michael Joseph Savage and um, Patty Webb and all these people and Pat Hickey who I've done a lot of work on but these characters who had been seeing um, strikes and union activity as the major form of how to change society and bring about socialism which they were 
of their goal, um, they moved more towards a political, as in party political thing, because they saw that, as they saw it, you needed um, to control the police and the army if you were going to have power. So they ended up becoming um, what became the Labour Party, and in effect, many of these militant revolutionists, as they called themselves by the 1930s, had become fairly centre-left Labour politicians who end up running the country in 1935. The Labour cabinet of 1935 had six out of 13 of its prominent people being former Red Fed leaders who had been leaders of that strike. It also had um, six miners in it, which is probably more than you have had <laughs> any. Yeah. And um, it had the largest portion of people who had been in jail <laughs> of any, um, any cabinet. Um, they were older by then and less militant, but it certainly had an impact on their beliefs in um, a social democratic type of country, which is what they tried to build from that. So it had an influence in that way. I mean, there were a, a smaller number of people who were driven further to the left from events, though a lot of them ended up going to Australia. Um, but yeah, it certainly had impact in what those who'd been involved in it went on to do, and it, um, it did leave still quite a strong union movement despite um, the fact that they'd lost that particular struggle. Yeah. Wow. Thank you very much for sharing with us, Peter. Thanks for coming. Ah, no problem. My pleasure.